3: Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast, a Hunger Games Catching Fire Mockingjay Part 3 special. I'm Steve Norman, joined, as I always am, by Owen Hughes. Hello. And this week by Callum Petch.
2: Hello.
3: And Black Hole Cinema's Chris Hay.
2: Hi. It's not Black Hole Cinema anymore, though, is it? Because it's gone, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, I say unfortunately. They, they, they're they back again in a new guise under pick-a-flick. Yeah. Which is... Which is a great concept. I'm looking forward to sort of getting on there myself as well. But yeah, so welcome, Chris. Welcome (laughs) to Failed Critics. Oh, thank you for
1: having me. I am a fan, so this is quite cool for me.
3: Yes, and welcome back, Callum. Are you a fan?
0: Um, I don't know. Not really. We'll take take that as a no,
3: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On to the podcast itself, and obviously from the introduction, you could tell that we'll be reviewing the latest in the Hunger, the final film in the Hunger Games series. Um, But we've got other things before that, starting off with the quiz where Owen is beating me 2-1 at the moment, and I'm one step away from probably watching an episode of Columbo or something.
2: Yeah, it's possible, isn't it? Uh, Who knows what you might end up watching, Steve? Not even I know at the moment. I'm going to have to have a quick Google while we do the quiz. um... Columbo. (laughs) (laughs)
3: murder she wrote feature length murder she wrote
2: we will we will see yeah um okay so the quiz is basically do you you know do you remember the first hunger games coming out steve do you remember that yes do do you remember you reviewed it on the podcast did i you james and jerry it was pre me before I was part of fail Critics, even. It started off okay with those first three episodes, didn't it? B.O. died downhill. Oh, dear. Yes, so basically, kind of with the success of the Hunger Games franchise, one thing that we have discussed a couple times on the podcast in the past is kind of what young adult series of novels, or what, what kind of film like that is going to be the next big thing? Because we've already seen films like Maze Runner and Divergent, films that Callum reviewed hilariously on the podcast when they came out, because we had no idea what the fuck was going on with those. So Hunger Games, I guess, wasn't the first young adult novel or series to be turned into a movie franchise, I suppose, if you sort of count Twilight and even even maybe Harry Potter. So the quiz this week is basically me reading out a synopsis of a young adult adaptation that's either real or fake. Hey.
3: And you have to tell me
2: Ooh, okay. if you think it's real or if I've made it up. Uh, I'm, okay, I'm, right. real or fake. I will award a bonus point as well if you can tell me the name of the film that the synopsis belongs to okay. if it is isn't fact real. Okay. Okay. And it's the first to guess correctly three times. So Callum and Chris, you may confer. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. so the first question is... Well, it's not the first question. The first synopsis is, <laughs> an orphan farm boy finds a blue stone sent by a princess. It soon transpires that the stone is in fact a dragon egg. It oh, I got it. And the farm boy becomes a dragon rider and sets about freeing his people from the tyrant Galbatorix. Real, real. Yeah. Okay, Steve, do you agree? I guess... Yes. Probably do. <laughs> okay, we'll go by shouting out what the name of the film is, and the first one to tell me gets the point. Aragon. The bonus point. Aragorn. It is Aragorn. Aragorn. Yes. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> okay, I know, how, I
0: know how it works now. I'm not going to suddenly shout out the title halfway through you reading it.
2: Sorry. Okay. You just gave up the point to Steve. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Second one. When a level-headed waitress uses a key she finds in her tip jar to open a secret door in her grandma's basement that only she can walk through, it takes her to 1940s France, where she must help save a wounded American soldier from the invading Nazis. She must decide whether to return home or stay in the past and save the soldier's life. Say
3: it's false. I really want that to be true. Oh. I've got a funny feeling it is I real. I don't know what it is, but I just feel like I've heard something like that before. <sighs> I'm going to
0: say it's fake. False. It sounds it's... awesome, but it's false, I think.
3: I'm going to say it's real, but I don't know what it is.
2: It's false. It's fake. I made it up. So, Steve, unfortunately, you are losing and one step closer to watching a Columbo film. Okay. Oh, good. <laughs> okay. Third one. A race of parasitic alien beings who go from planet to planet have arrived on Earth and taken over. True. One human girl. Yeah. That's true. True, real. Okay.
1: Yeah.
2: Okay, real and the film is The Host. The Host. Yes. London, yes. Directed by Andrew Nicole. An That's right. From the book by
1: Stephanie Meyer.
0: Yeah. An old shite. You're
2: not having <laughs> extra points for these, I'm afraid. I just want to know <laughs> the whether it's real or fake. I was just, I mean, we're just showing off how, like how much of these
0: shitty films and stories yeah. have uh, been pumping into our brains. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Basically, at the minute, the points are Steve has two points and Callum and Chris have five points. Three questions to go. Three questions to go. A 17-year-old werewolf falls in love with a recently turned vampire. Their families have been feuding for centuries across Europe and are on the brink of all-out war that could threaten to expose them to the rest of mankind, destroying any chance the lovers have of remaining together.
3: Yeah, that's real.
0: He says know. real. I want to say real, but at the same time, that seems too generic to be an actual...
1: That's yeah. that sounds almost a bit kind of underworldish, but I I, I think it's
0: fake. I think. to Say fake, yeah. It's it sounds too generic to be an actual. Yeah. yeah. It is fake. Yes.
2: It's very fake. And I <laughs> went for a very generic sounding sort of premise to try and lure you
3: in, and only Steve. Well, it just sounds uh, like Twilight. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you have described t- Twilight inadvertently, so therefore I get yeah. points if only
2: i could make as much money from it if i could pitch that it's it's
3: already been done so
0: yeah
2: that doesn't seem to stop all the legions of copycats i knew i knew
0: wasting hours of my life watching terrible young adult movies will pay off eventually (laughs) (laughs) number five the imperial empire is attacked by
2: an alliance of rebels led by fantastical mystics the ruler empress nobu the eighth generation of her family wants to execute a bold plan to rescue a cyborg trapped on a battle-ravaged planet that holds the secret to ve- defeating the rebels.
3: Is that a real adaptation of a young adult novel, or fake?
1: Oh, that sounds really awesome, but I... Oh.
3: it's I think it's false. It's too much like Star Wars. It's too much Star Wars in it for it to be real. Yeah, but is it... <sighs> okay, do you know
1: what? Screw, screw it. I'm going to go with true, because I have a feeling it's something really obscure. It's like a really obscure thing that I've never heard of.
0: Yeah, that, that's why I want to say real, but uh, no, going to say, I'm going to say fake. Okay. Oh, we'll if do it's, there, it. If it's real, if it's real, then Chris, um, we get a point anyway, because Chris says real. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. Fine, we'll split the votes. Get, get half points.
2: It is fake in the sense that it's not an adaptation of a young adult novel, but it is an Albert Poyon film that's due out next year called Star Warfare Rangers and the Cyborg Witch of Endor.
0: It sounds fucking awful. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Doesn't it, though? Oh, uh, my God. It's due out in March next year, supposedly. We get half point for that. Well, you get a point because you said not real. Yeah, and it is, that's true. It's, not, it's a fake adaptation. There's no young adult book that that is based on. So, points all round there. I, would, I could have asked you for the film name. If someone had have guessed the actual <laughs> film name, that would have been like 10 points. Oh, God. Okay, final one. When her mother disappears, a woman learns that she descends from a line of warriors who protect our world from demons. She joins forces with others like her and heads into a dangerous alternate New York.
3: True. I'll say true.
1: I don't know what it is. I'll, I'll say true. It sounds really good. I don't know what it is, though. But yeah, I think it's true.
0: Is it really good, Callum? No, no, it's not.
2: Aww.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. It is true, so you both get points, but... I am 85% certain it is The Mortal Instruments, City of Bones. It is Mortal Instruments. Oh, God damn it! Okay, never mind then, never mind then. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered if The Mortal Instruments was
1: going to come up, because they've done that TV show of it now, and I'm just like, oh no, this sounds awful. They just... turned it into a TV show. Yeah, it's on MTV. Oh, well, this is the same just... MTV that made Scream into uh, a series, which is fucking awful. So,
2: <laughs> I really wanted to give that a go, and every time I look at it,
0: I think, uh, no, you, you, no, you I think, can't. I could be doing much better things in my life. Yeah, exactly. I like yeah. done 127 episodes of a podcast. That is true.
1: Um, yeah. I will say, Scream is one of those shows where you won't regret not seeing it. If that makes yeah. sense, so you're just like, I won't feel <laughs> I bad for not seeing it. Well,
2: anyway, that's the that's the end of the quiz. Steve had four points at the end of that, but Chris and Caleb had nine points.
3: Nice. Well, hey. well,
2: Got there. every single question correct, which must be also be a first for one of our quizzes. So I congratulations. Know, I'm not so proud. Those. But why
0: does the victory feel so hollow? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Steve. Yeah. On ITV3. On Sunday, <laughs> 10 to 1, <laughs> is Colombo Identity Crisis. That,
3: I've picked out the is. one that's got the highest rating for you,
1: which
2: is on...
3: TV guide. I just want to be at work on Sunday, so it'll kill some time.
0: <laughs> There's a party that wants to ask why
3: Columbo, and at the same time just wants to leave this completely contextless, and
0: just like, as a family,
3: just joining in one point, and now all about Columbo. Okay. Why, why Columbo? Because, because it's Columbo.
2: Yeah, Steve started this. I think this is going to have to be the last time either of us picks
3: Columbo. You say that, <laughs> but you know me by now. Otherwise, Kilkeith's coming back. <laughs> oh, kill Keith.
0: Stuck here for
2: United Passion. <laughs> yeah, that one's well and truly gone now. Yeah. Oh dear. Right, okay. So,
3: Columbo, Steve, that's what you're going to have to. It's Columbo. It's Columbo. On to the news, and the first item on the news uh, is the cast of the new Wonder Woman film, or the full cast has been released. Uh, I think it was, well, it has been well known, obviously, that uh, Gal Godot. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it is now. Is going to be playing Wonder Woman. It's also going to feature uh, Chris Pine, Robin Wright, Danny Houston, David Wellis. <laughs> <laughs> really... yep. yeah, yeah. You, and, you and Bremner, someone whose name I won't try and pronounce, Elena Anaya. <laughs> and... That's the one. And Lucy Davis uh, of um, The Office fame. Nicole hmm. Kidman does not appear to be part of the film, although it was strongly rumored for some time. Yeah,
2: I think we kind of knew a lot of like Chris Pine's been suggested for a long time as being uh, as going to be playing Captain Steve Trevor, who is basically like Wonder Woman's human sidekick in the real world, you know. Whereas I I don't I don't know whether I I like Chris Pine yet. Has anyone else got any strong feelings one way or the other towards Chris Pine, or is he just another generic leading he's, he's man? Quite, he's
3: of? quite generic. I mean, I do like the the rebooted Star Trek films. The first one more than the second one. I think he's fairly good as Captain Kirk, but other than that, I've not everything I've seen him in. Other than that, seems to be quite by the books, generic films, either like rom coms or action films, that kind of thing. Where he's a typical archetypal leading man. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I like I've been into the woods he's high he agony and ripped open with ripped open his shirt.
3: <laughs> I liked yeah, where well, he, he was he, he was actually quite. He was actually really good in one of the better things about Into the Woods, I think. Him and the other <laughs> kind of prince just being really over the top and ridiculous.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I was like in of bosses too when he just got to be a complete like psychopath, insane, insane guy in that. As well. Like. When, essentially, he's one, of those, uh, he's one of those guys who clearly will be good in when Hollywood stops trying to type past him as grand leading man. I imagine. Although I guess he's still paying penance for starring in *This Means War*.
3: Mm.
0: But that's probably the first time any of you have actually remembered that *This Means War* exists. in, Like three years since it came out. Oh
3: god, yeah. I
0: do remember it. I, I didn't
2: see it though. I I think
0: me and... it's awful.
2: Yeah, James and, and I both were writing for a magazine at the time for about a month or two. We both going, And he had to go and see This Means War to write about it.
0: And <laughs> uh, I
2: don't think he ever
0: got over that. Yeah. Well, that's probably why he left after, after the month. Back. Like, he couldn't go back. It was too scarred, I remember memories.
2: Yeah, but I don't know. I kind of think he's... He, I think he's okay. I just can't get that excited about hearing him cast as... Mm as steve trevor who's a bit of an arsehole in the comics you know i've never really been that much of a fan of uh wonder woman in the in the comics but t- i don't know i don't know i don't know if he's got that level of charisma to to make yeah. wonder woman suddenly seem more interesting
1: yeah i mean for wasn't it for ages it was like nathan fillion was kind of touted this oh he's the perfect oh, steve yeah. trevor all that sort of thing he and gets he gets,
3: oh, he gets oh. linked with kind of every. Comic book film at the moment. Yeah, it seems to be like I was going to say he got like Green Lantern, wasn't
1: he? Mm. Yeah, I really thought he was going to be Green Lantern and all that. But Chris Pine seems like a lovely guy, and he's a an okay actor, but he is very forgettable. That's mm. the thing. He is kind of very vanilla, very generic. He, um, you know, and he's quite funny as Captain Kirk and everything. But that's that's about it, really. It's like in that. Um... Oh God, what was that? You know that Jack Ryan. Oh, oh right, yeah. With Kenneth Branagh and everything, it, it yeah. the best thing you can say about it is like it it was it it was okay, it was serviceable. But I don't remember anything about that film at all. I know he's in it. That's it. He didn't really make an impression. So I'll be surprised if he's quite good in Wonder Woman, but pleasantly. So because I'm I'm more going there for like Gal Gadot because. Yeah, she's awesome. So well, that, <laughs> that is why I'm just like, it, it's awesome to see a, you know an actual female superhero with her own film. Because um, yeah, I've I've been really bitter about the fact there hasn't been a Black Widow one for months, and and us. also the cap and the Captain Marvel
0: keeps getting pushed back again and again. I know um,
1: exactly. It keeps getting pushed back, and they're like, oh, it's for a good reason. I'm like, if it's so,
0: you can give Benedict Cumberbatch another film. Just <laughs> oh, don't don't forget as well when they announce the Ant-Man sequel with uh, oh, like, yeah. all kind of um, oh we've got a female superhero's name in the title for the first time ever I'm like you do not get to fuck it. sorry I'm about to go on to the same rant that is like last month but move on before I get angry no no <laughs> like before I see Red and then I come back and just find I've destroyed all computers in my room
1: yeah if, if it helps I feel exactly the same way so yeah thank you buddy yes we shall be
3: um <laughs> yeah Anyway, anyway
1: yeah. yes. What's the next
2: item of next news? Next is Steve?
3: that uh, I think we spoke about this a while ago, but it has been confirmed that Logan's Run will be getting a remake, and it will be turned into a Hunger Games-style franchise. I can't see any way at
2: all that that is going to be a good thing.
0: No, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't believe franchise being good because franchise is be just the big word. Like it's just the new word that everybody in Hollywood's throwing around now. Like, without yeah. any meaning or anything. I mean, there's going to be a fucking extended universe of Fast and Furious movies, apparently, as well, <laughs> focusing on certain characters, and just, I just, like, I, I, I think it's just official that nobody actually fucking understands anymore, to be No. So, let me put it this way, when it inevitably fails, it, then we'll start up, you know, the whole worrying about it, well, until then... Uh. The only
1: thing I'm kind of excited for with the Logan's Run thing, because I've seen the original and it's it's, mm-hmm. it's alright, that sort of thing. I really hope if they turn it to a trilogy, then they just make really shit titles. So it's like, Logan's Run, Logan's Sprint, Logan's Amiable <laughs> Jog, Logan's... Logan's, you know, Logan's Winded Half Walk, you know, just like that sort <laughs> of thing. If it's just Logan's... Pff, Logan's We'd fuck all at the moment, he's tired. It's just,
3: you know... Or, or the pitch. film after he's had a, had a curry... Is Logan's runs?
0: I just said that, Steve. <laughs> I like that. Oh. <laughs> I was uh, to two
3: hours in on toilet.
0: Uh,
3: or no. Logan takes part in a bake-off <laughs> equivalent, Logan's buns. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Logan joins a convent, Logan's nuns. <laughs> Logan stars in a remake of Friends, Logan's chums. Okay, this is getting good. This. Um. Logan becomes an arms dealer. Logan's guns. Logan becomes a maths teacher. Logan sums. <laughs> I think we'll stop now. Yeah,
0: yeah let's, let's move on.
3: If at any yeah. point during the podcast you think of another one, just bring it up. I feel yeah, point... just say it randomly. We'll all know what you mean. Yeah. Uh,
0: can we can we focus on the, on more interesting remake news? Which is the fact that the fact that. Has no star anymore, and the company that's supposed to it went bankrupt. Is um, that producer Edward Pressman still believes that the Crow reboot is going to, be shut, is going to start filming the next year? <laughs> <laughs> Which I find hilarious, quite
3: <laughs> Well, God loves a trier. And on, to, <laughs> and, and on to God now. The final part of our news is that a lot of large cinema chains have decided not to show an advert from the church with the Lord's Prayer in it. Or just an advert of the Lord's Prayer. It's not been banned, um, as was kind of initially implied. It's just not been taken up.
2: Yeah, it's it's passed all the ratings and got all the certification it needs to be, uh, you know, from the uh, the board of film classification. They've said it's, you know, it's a U, it's fine. It's gone through the the cinema advertising authority and got all clearance and etc. Like, but it it actually, I think View, Odeon and Cineworld have said they're not going to show it.
3: Well, that means I might have to see it in
2: my local Empire in the morning. Yeah, you still might get it in Empire, but I won't get it on my unlimited card trips. I mean, I'm not really bothered about sort of advertising standards and all that kind of thing. My initial reaction was, well, why is it being banned? That was what I initially thought. I thought, well, what's going to be... Is it really going to be about whether someone's going to be offended by it or not? But I think that the deeper lying issue from what I can see is that it means that cinemas would be bending to a certain style you know if they accept one religious advert would that sort of open the door to political sort of messages being shown before films would you go and see you know the final hunger games film and get a, a message from the uk communist party or whatever you know i don't know
3: i, be, I think part of it was that the cinema chains didn't think their viewers would want to see it and I, I'd have to agree. I don't go to a cinema to be, to be preached at quite literally in this case. But you know, I don't go. I'm annoyed that I pay that much money for a cinema ticket. I have to sit through adverts. But you know, you can, I can tolerate adverts for products or TV shows or charities or whatever. But I don't want somebody preaching religion at me when I'm going to enjoy myself at the cinema. Or preaching politics at me. I don't want there to be, you know, a party political broadcast before I go and see Star Wars. I don't want, you know, that stuff. I'm going to enjoy myself, leave it out. Mm, yeah. It's not it's not the place for it.
1: You want it to be kind of like a neutral space really where there's yeah. no leaning either way. Nah, that makes sense and I get why they've removed it because it would kind of then move them towards one slant and then you would have kind of lash back saying, well, you haven't let any of ours do this, or that sort of thing, so I get it, but it's like I know some people who are very upset by this, and they are kind of hardcore Christians, <laughs> and they're very so... much like, you know, I think it's in touch with our religion, I'm like, oh, you've had two thousand years. Let's let's you've had 2,000 years let's, let's <laughs> you, you've had a good crack for a couple of millennia, so how about you let them just not put the advert in, yeah?
2: But, you know? but at the same time, you know <laughs> I can I can understand their point of view in that there's nothing inherently offensive about it, really. You know, it, they've gone they've passed all the um, barriers that they would have needed to go through to make a, a, an advert that's not deemed offensive. It's not deemed to be insulting or or or, or couldn't cause any offence for anybody. But uh, it's up to these private organisations who've said no that they're not going to do it. So I can kind of understand. You know, you can you 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 can see adverts for the British Army at the cinema.
0: is the British that Army just... look incredibly cool as well?
2: Yeah. So mm. y- that's kind of a political message. Is that any worse? Any better? <laughs> but the uh, but the
3: army adverts all tend to be recruitment-driven ones. So it's trying to get people. It, it's it's more like oh, we're trying to get people into work, trying to get them a career, and teach them things rather than. The army are going around the world and killing all these bloody terrorists. Come and join us. That's pretty good. It's more. It's more about come join the army. You could learn these skills which you can apply to life.
0: Explain why fifteen made to make them look like cool horror movie by people taking down bad guys who the power of being <laughs> Batman. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
1: But
2: yeah, I don't know. I think it, I can understand why they've done it. I can't get too upset about it myself, but. At the same time, I, I I feel a little bit on the fence. I think it's up to the cinema chains to decide what they want to show. I think that the reasoning for deciding whether not to show something that has already been deemed OK is... It's a little flimsy, if I'm honest.
3: Triple Bill now and a Hunger Games special where we have all been assigned uh, an actor or actress from this series and um, to pick our three favourite films of theirs. I have got Woody Harrelson... Chris has got Jennifer Lawrence, Callum has got Julianne Moore, and Owen has got Donald Sutherland. Owen, why don't you start us off with your one of your favourite Donald Sutherland movies?
2: Sure, okay. Um, Just a little bit of background about why I've got Donald Sutherland and who he is. He plays President Snow in the Hunger Games series, and he's basically the big bad guy if you like and he's actually he's been around for a long time i didn't really uh, i didn't realize actually how old he is i think he's about 80 years old and he's been working in films for about 50 years the past 50 years solidly and i guess most people these days do recognize him as that guy from the hunger games but i think before then he was known for two things really one would probably have been his key for sutherland's dad that's one of the things most people would have known him as. The other is because of his own films and sort of iconic films like Kelly's Heroes and he was in MASH and The Dirty Dozen, of course. And I think I first saw him in 1992's Buffy the Vampire Slayer film, if you guys can remember that.
3: I, um, I remember yeah. of, it, of it.
2: yeah. yeah. Um, unfortunately, I don't really remember too much about that film or Donald Sutherland in it beyond him basically being um, I think it was The Watcher. Was what his character was or whatever he was called i think anthony stewart head had the same character in in the tv series but what i do remember him in and is therefore my first choice for triple bill is the 1978 sci-fi remake uh, invasion of the body snatchers and i can't believe there's anybody listening who doesn't at least know the basic premise of invasion of the body snatchers uh, given the release of like other films that use the same premise like uh, the faculty uh, the world's end quite recently Use the same premise, even stuff like Invasion, which had Nicole Kidman and a, a pre-Bond Daniel Craig in it. Well,
3: what, what, um, that was a, a reimagining or, of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, wasn't it?
2: It was. Yeah, there have been lots and lots of like interpretations and remakes and things that use the same source material and 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 come up with their own ideas. But you know, just in case, very briefly, essentially, what happens is aliens land on Earth. They start replacing people with their own imitations that they grow from. Kind of like seed pods. And that's, that's really all you need to know about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's um, in, in, Actually, in the 1978 film, the one with Donald Tutherland did, the aliens like to point and open their mouths a lot and make a weird screeching noise when they sort of identify somebody who's not one of them, which is kind of creepy. Um, but this, this film co-starred people like uh, Leonard Nimoy was in it. There was an early appearance from Jeff Goldblum. And Veronica Cartwright, who like the next year in 1979, she was in Alien. So uh, Donald Sutherland's the main character, uh, the protagonist called Matthew Bennell, who first spots that his friends are not who they appear to be. And he sets about trying to uncover the mystery of of what's really going on. If you're into paranoid science fiction stuff like Alien or uh, The Thing or I Am Legend or anything like that, then Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a must watch for fans of the genre. It's a classic storyline. It's really well directed by Philip Kaufman. Um and if his name sounds familiar, it's because he's the guy who wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he also he also wrote The Outlaw Josie Wales, which is one of my my favourite films of his. But he, he paces Invasion of the Body Snatchers really well. You can see he knows exactly how to craft a story because it's got adventure in it, it's got horror, it's got mystery, it's got a lot of thrills and it's even, it's even got a few laughs at times. It's kind of got a bit of, bit of black humour in there. It's, really, it's, it's great, it's a really great film. And one thing that I just want to finally point out before we move on is that although I'm not going to give it away, the film does have an ending that is rather notorious. It's quite a famous ending, its final shot. And I got this confused, this fact confused me, because I watched the original 1956 film by Don Sigel before watching the, the 78 remake, which I thought was the film that was known for its final scene. And I kind of waited all the way through, thinking, okay, well, it's, it's alright, it's not bad, it's going to get better, because I know about this, this, this final moment, this last last scene. And then the ending to that is just a kind of typical 1950s science fiction ending with, oh, the humans haven't won, really. It's it's worse than we feared and that's it it just goes and you think oh what that is why is that so famous but then when i watched the 1978 film yeah okay that is a hell of an ending and it deserves deserves the acclaim that it's got for being one of the best horror film endings ever it's just such it's much better than the 1956 films ending put it that way and donald sutherland's performance in that moment is is kind of key to why it worked so well because he plays the hero quite well and he also plays the ending character quite well too so yeah first film 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers
3: okay uh, Callum your or one of your favourite Julianne Moore films please
0: okay then uh, there's not really so much favourite here as uh, three ones that I would rather prefer talking about um, I'm going to start off with one of the first um, films I reviewed for film critics actually which was two thousand and fourteen Non-Stop uh which in which in some certain ways is basically a twenty fourteen Liam Neeson vehicle. But was actually <laughs> mu- was actually much better than that. So it's a um thriller set on entirely on a commercial flight, uh yeah, flight, um non stop flight from I believe it's like London to Paris or something. Um, and Liam Neeson plays Mayor Marshall and um, uh, who ends up receiving messages whilst on the flight from somebody who's hacked into his um travel like into his little Secure channel thing. Tell him that if he's not able to get a transfer of money of like $10 million to a certain bank account within like 20 minutes, then somebody will die. I and mean, they will keep dying every 20 minutes until he pays up. And so then the film, and then the film ends up and Liam and Lee's attempts to find out who's causing, you know, who's trying to blackmail him, who's taking over the fly, who's murdering people. But the key, the key reason why the movie always sticks out, stuck out for me is because of the fact that the film is basically for most part, a very long takedown screen about against the sort of lone wolf characters that Lee Neeson would play. You know, have a guy who, who like you know bursts into rooms and starts torturing people and accusing everybody and that, actually telling people what's going on and how that breeds resentment and distrust in other, like in other people who are instead just watching this crazy man wander around shouting at people, threatening with guns and such like that, looking like he's actually and essentially making himself look like he's you know the one who's actually responsible for all the problems here. It's got a very nice ensemble cast backing up Liam Neeson, Julianne Moore there as well, Um Peter Tonyongo is there at one point, I think it's like Scoot McNary, like, like, a whole lot of like character actors who do face. And um Juan Colette the film director, who also did Unknown, which wasn't very good, but was at least somewhat interesting, so that's the pattern of your Euro you before Liam Neeson movies. He's uh, actually able to do a very good job as well of being able to extract tension, because he doesn't cheat. Mainly, like, at no point, like, there are no points in the film where the film takes place outside the playing, like, cuts back to get down to ground so you can see what's going on on there or things like that. And he always kind of plays fair in terms of, like, the rules of the movie and how things work. Um it's not perfect, mainly because, uh, when it comes time to reveal the motive for the villain, it's kind of really not good. I and mean, then the film can't seem to resist having a big crowd-pleasing, you know, action blowout finale. But it's a lot better than um, a film like non- like than a the descriptive film and words Liam Neeson vehicle like we'd expect. And also again it's also a lot more again, a lot more subversive than such a setup would make you intend about that. I remember really enjoying this film last year as well. It's, it's, worth, it's worth checking out. I think it's on Netflix I remember, so it's worth the ninety minutes or so we I'm watching it.
3: Okay. Uh, Chris, uh, your favourite Jennifer Lawrence film. <laughs>
0: Okay, um,
1: yeah, I got to do Jennifer Lawrence. Not a sentence many men will get to say. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, yeah, so I, mean, I had to I had to go with uh, the two thousand and ten film Winter's Bone, just because it is the film that really kind of brought her to mainstream attention, and it's the thing that kind of broke her out of the minor supporting roles and the you know the her previous TV, TV work and that sort of thing, and obviously it got her an Academy Award nomination as well. So, if you haven't seen *Winter's Bone*, it is uh, a film that's written and directed by Deborah Granik, and it stars Jennifer Lawrence as a girl in the rural Ozarks of the middle of the United States. It's all about kind of messed-up family dynamics. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence is a 17-year-old in this, and she has to look after her young family because her dad's a meth addict, and basically, he's gone off to um, on on, he's he's disappeared basically i'm trying not to give away the plot of the film because it is a genuinely very good very short um twisty dark film that's about what happens when what happens when the kind of the 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 idea of family kind of starts to break down really it, it is honestly fantastic i mean there's not that much of a huge podcast that people are aware of there is garrett dillahunt who i think people have seen in all the stuff I'm sure he's been in other bits and pieces as well. The name's really familiar, and you'll be like, oh, that's so-and-so. Um, Cheryl Lee is in it, who, to cult fans, is obviously Laura Palmer from Twin Peaks, and she is very good in it. She only has, like, a minor supporting role in it, but she is really good as well. But really, this is kind of Jennifer Lawrence's first showcase on how to do tough and vulnerable Acting, which has really become her kind of niche, really in recent years, particularly um, in the Hunger Games series, which we're obviously going to be touching on later in the um, in the episode. It's a very powerful, very emotive film. Like I said, it's incredibly it is incredibly dark because it's talking about the death of parents and the kind of death of innocence and all these sort of big themes. Yeah, I I just I really cannot recommend it enough.
2: It's a it's a great performance as well. Oh, not it even is. just like by her
1: own standards, it's a really good performance. So I think she was. Yeah, it's it's, it's objectively good because Jennifer Lawrence yeah. is a good actress. But then, even by hers, you're like, okay, so this, she's really set the bar quite high here mm-hmm. in terms of what she's able to do and what she's able to kind of bring to table in, you know, this role of Re as this very uh, struggling, brave, broken girl. And she she is only a, a girl and she's been forced into the role of being a mother and a sister and a protector and all this sort of thing. So it's, yeah, I absolutely love this performance from her.
3: Okay. Uh, I was like I said earlier, Woody Harrelson, and I mean, I think really I kind of saw his career in reverse, like kind of starting off with the more modern films he's been in and working back to some of the older films and and then to watching Cheers, um, which he's brilliant in. Cheers is just a fantastic sitcom all round. But the first film I'm picking of his um, is one where he's more of a secondary character, and that is No Country for Old Men. Uh, the mm-hmm. Coen Brothers film 2007, which won four Academy Awards, Best, Direct, uh, Best Director, Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem and Best Adapted Screenplay. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's about a man who finds a load of money that's not his and it's kind of one of those films where different characters, plots and all intertwine and it's got kind of a modern Western feel to it as well. Um, based on a Cormac McCarthy book. Woody Harrelson is is kind of I said, a secondary character, um, but still quite an important character. plays kind of a cocky bounty hunter, and it's kind of a, a role that he does in other films. Not a bounty hunter bit, but a cocky kind of person. And yeah, just think it works really well. plays well as part of a, an excellent film. Um, I think with the Coen brothers, I'm not the biggest fan. I find them very hit and miss, whereas I know other people's are absolute massive, massive fans of theirs. But this one I, I loved. And I thought Woody Harrelson was excellent in it.
2: Yeah, I know what you mean about them being hit or miss. Some of the films they've made are exceptional. Big Lebowski is is a really funny film. No Country for Old Men, as you mentioned. Fargo. I really yeah. liked Inside Llewyn Davis as well from, uh, from the other year. But then they have made stuff like Raising Arizona, which... I really do not understand why people like that. I can
3: only assume it's because it's got Nick Cage in it and
2: Nick Cage has got cult status. You can watch
3: one of their films and then watch another and think, how the hell are the same people made this? Mm, Yeah. But,
2: um, yeah, I think we're okay to pick films that actors are only secondary bit part characters in. Yeah, I mean,
3: there's a a, a lot, looking back, there's a lot of Woody Harrelson films that are, he he seems to be quite versatile in so much as he Mm -hmm. could do comedies one of which I'll come on to later. He can do the more you can. He can do films like um, No Country for Old Men, and another film we're going to mention as part of the three. And he can also do kind of like action films as well. You see, and um, obviously his his craft seemed to be honed in comedy when he was on Cheers. But he's gone on to mm-hmm. do a variety of different types of film and excelled uh, and been you know picked up acclaim for for lots.
2: Yeah, yeah. He's a very uh, like I said versatile. The style actor. Back to you, Owen. OK, so, yeah, my second choice is a film that Donald Sutherland was only in for, uh, in total, I think it's about five minutes of screen time that he gets. But it's one of those kinds of films that it sticks with you for days afterwards, after you've watched it, the more you think about it. And particularly the scene he's in where he plays a kind of quasi-Jesus Chap who pops up during a game of blackjack between some soldiers it's um it's an adaptation of a book from 1971 and it's called johnny got his gun and i'm guessing most people might not know the name of the film but any metallica fans will more than likely recognize clips of it because it's it's the film that metallica used various scenes from in the music video for one so uh, I think it gives you a quick insight into how dark and disturbing Johnny Got His Gun is, if you've ever seen that music video. But it doesn't... It, it just doesn't prepare you for the the force of the story in this film. It's about a man who's got something called locked-in syndrome. That is to say, he's a soldier who, on the very last day of World War One, gets hit by a mortar shell. It blows his legs off, it blows his arms off, and his face. So he's deaf, dumb... Blind and has no limbs, but is still fully conscious. That's just incredibly bleak. Just as a, even as a concept, or as a thing, never mind. And then tried to turn it into a film, a feature film, and particularly because he remains the main character throughout the film. This guy, but anyway, so it it sounds absolutely horrendous, but it is just totally engrossing all the way through. And I, as much as you can enjoy a film like this, I enjoyed it. I, I, uh, it was upsetting. Yeah. It was very disturbing, but it really it it gets to you it makes you think it's very emotional it's not an experience that should be replicated frequently, otherwise you will end up with a crippling depression but the the concept is is frightening, and the, the it's the way that it's put together the way the plot unfolds as um as this guy Johnny kind of recounts his his memories. Uh, and has these hallucinations and and fantasies, uh, and, and particularly he fantasizes about things like the time that Jesus, who is Donald Sutherland, turned up in camp, and turned water into whiskey, did a few card tricks. But it's just it seems like it's 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 a it's played for it's not it's so sensitively handled, and he it kind of brightens it up in a way, Donald Sutherland. He he just exudes this this aura in that scene. And you really get a sense of, of what a good actor that he would become. Because this was 1971, so still a few years before he really made it. But it's a very memorable and moving scene. Uh, the film itself is massively underrated. Or, or maybe underappreciated is, is probably the bare, better choice of word. And it's not just a film with those clips that Metallica use. It's, it's a really well-constructed
3: movie. So yeah, so that's my second choice. Okay, Callum, your second choice, please.
0: Uh, My second choice is Boogie Nights by Paul Thomas Anderson. Good choice. Which is a uh, drama, drama, comedy elements, but drama about um, the porn industry in the late 70s, early 80s, I believe, or the late 80s, early 90s. I can't remember from my head by now. I'm I'm talking about him. I hope somebody can just chime in here and get it (laughs) correct. I think it was 70s. Yeah. Um yeah, it was the film itself primarily following, uh, Mark Wahlberg's, uh, Dirk Diggler, who is a, who en- ended up becoming a porn star, like a porn megastar, thanks to his really, really, really big assets. And then essentially following his, his meteoric rise and his crushing fall, um, throughout over the, over the course of the decade, uh, the decade. Also as Julianne Moore as well as the, um how do you to Girlfriend or? Trying to, like she's like she says she actually appears on screen as like one of the big female stars of the mm-hmm. company as well. Constantly like poked out on her like over her head and just essentially giving us kind of live wire yet also sometimes raw performance that ends up having a lot of that ends up shouldering a lot of the film's humanity for a lot of the film's And it's a like she does really good work there as well. In addition to it being you know Paul an it's absolutely getting nailing that kind of like period detail and then long stylish like again and stylish um takes like you know, long takes about right, right, feeling like it's just overindulging for sake of overindulging. I would say it's a bit long, personally, like I feel like the film's one a bit too long right there. But um again, I again it, it's it's it It's be nice. i really enjoyed watching the movie. It is
2: it is a fantastic film and it's one sort of the like, it's weird to describe as a, a biopic because i think a lot of it is exaggerated yeah i'm yeah. not sure that, that, it. that's why i just went straight
0: like drama instead
2: of yeah exactly yeah oh,
0: yeah
2: and lots of it is is dramatized but it's also mainly not mainly but it is very good because of the performances in it from people like julianne moore from mark Wahlberg, from uh, john c Riley, from burt reynolds mm. who's brilliant in it and yeah and it's 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 got a great direction and the music is fantastic in it as well Really yeah. suits the, the tone of the film And has a, a really... Uh, Don Cheadle, of course I forgot Don Cheadle was in it Oh I mean, yeah, it was... he is, yeah Yeah. And Heather he Graham Yeah Yeah So there's, it's, got a, it's, got a, it's got quite a good cast and it's, no, no, a good... it's
0: one of those casts where like, Every time you just think of Oh yeah, so-and-so's in it so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Albert Molina's
2: here as well with, like, But of... don't expect anybody in it to be likeable I think yeah. Everyone in it is yeah. Nice yeah. all Which, which, maybe, which maybe.
0: is a shame that, uh, Well, like Although at the same time as well, I do feel like well, it doesn't completely demonize the, um, porn industry. Right, It kind of demonizes those who exploit people in the porn industry. Yes. Which is, which is like a, a insistent, like, well, I mean, actually there's a specific thing you need to mention there as well in the sense of, like in the same way that Magic Mike Echo doesn't demonize the sex industry. or well, I mean, like Magic Mike doesn't demonize the people work, like, the sex industry, like male entertainment industry, it demonizes those who essentially exploit them. Sorry, I just wanted to mention Magic Mike. <laughs> um, as I want to do You do know it's Alan Blueberry next week right? Save it for the recommendations Carol. Uh,
3: Chris <laughs> your next one
1: Okay Um, I am going to stick with One of Jennifer Lawrence's most famous In a way films and I'm going to go with Silver Linings Playbook This is her first collaboration with David O. Russell um, Which is a partnership That has now expanded to several Other films including uh, American Hustle Which wasn't amazing and joy which is coming out in christmas 2015 and which i am hoping to see but you know obviously after i've seen star wars at least twice because you know i'm I'm not an idiot silver linings playbook okay here is the plot uh bradley cooper plays a guy who had just come out of a mental institution after dealing with an incident of bipolar disorder after snapping and nearly beating his wife's lover uh, to death uh, upon release, he's going to try and build up build his life back up, win back his ex-wife, such and such. Jennifer Lawrence plays his love interest in the film, and it's his friend's sister. And initially, I mean, because I only saw this film a few months ago, mainly because it was on offer on Amazon, um, and I just fancied seeing it and all that sort of thing. Initially, she is a very irascible character. She's very dark. She's very spiky. She's not at all likable, but then she and Cooper have this fantastic chemistry that is completely undeniable when you see them together. There's a very famous scene in a diner when they're completely just going kind of head to head and she is screaming and accusing him of abusing her and then it all flips on its head and it's a fantastic, fantastic scene and I really recommend that you watch it for that alone. The film itself is incredible just for the Cast alone, so you've got Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence, Robert De Niro, Jackie Weaver, Julia Stiles. You've got Chris Tucker. You've got all these fantastic actors who kind of build up a myth. this a really tremendous film. I mean, in many ways, because uh, I've seen it touted as a drama more than it is a comedy, but I'd say it's pretty even split. It's one of Lawrence's strongest, if only, really comedic performance today. I know she's working on something with Amy Schumer at the moment, but it's. It's quite strange really that you would think that a kind of a rom com drama film would produce an Oscar winning performance, but it really does in a way because Lawrence manages to kind of mirror Cooper's neuroses. Um they're both very broken people, both recovering, and they do help each other a lot and then yeah, it, it it's a very surprising film. You can go into it very cynically and think, oh, okay, it's about this and it's about this, that sort of thing. But it does kind of win you over by the end of it. And particularly, Lawrence is kind of the star of the film. It's a very nuanced performance from her in that she does kind of evolve and become more likable, but she doesn't lose any of that kind of spikiness or bitterness that really kind of is the main note for her character at the beginning. She becomes more human and more well rounded, but then, you know, there's there's like a subplot that involves oh, they're gonna go on a dance competition or that sort of thing and if, you know, he does this then he might you know, the football team might win and it's it's a very, very <laughs> it's a very, very dense film for such a light fair in a way. And there's a lot going on in that there's superstition and there's you know, there's there's, there's a lot going on in this film, too much that I'm gonna I'm, I'm just not going to explain it. It's just a bit too much at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's a, it is a really enjoyable film, and Lawrence it it does maybe maybe it, it she was warranting kind of winning the award that year. It was a very strong year um, for Oscar contenders because that was the year of Jane Wallace and Beast of the Southern Wild, and uh, Emmanuel Emmanuel Rivera. So um, I think she was definitely the People's Choice when it comes to this. And it is a fantastic film, a fantastic performance, so I really would strongly recommend it.
2: I actually think that the competition was stronger when she um, was nominated for Winter's Bone. Because I think Winter's yeah. Bone is a better performance. But yes. then she was up against Natalie Portman in Black Swan and Michelle Williams in Blue Valentine. Well,
1: that's the thing, yeah. So she might... I mean, in this case, she was probably... She. It's definitely a good performance, but it was definitely tougher for her in 2000, the 2010-2011 Mm-hmm. Because you know Natalie Portman obviously won that year, but like you said, Jennifer you Michelle Williams and all that sort of. So yeah, it was mm. definitely strong. I mean, how Winter's Bone would have fared if it had been put up like a year earlier or a year later? We just we we don't know. But I yeah, think it, it's quite a strong performance. In fact, she was only twenty two when she won the yeah, Academy Awards well. The that kind of context has to be taken into account as well. So
3: okay, uh, my second Woody Harrelson film is the thin red line another film where he's not perhaps the the major character um but an excellent film nonetheless set in the Pacific theater of World War 2 got a phenomenal cast Sean Payne, obviously Woody Harrelson Jared Leto George Clooney John Cusack and others in
2: and Nick Nolte is a very angry army sergeant yes
3: very angry but <laughs> um yeah it's just it's probably one of the, the best war films, certainly of, um, I know it's 1998, but of of more recent times or comparably more recent times.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Again, nominated for, for multiple Academy Awards, like the first Woody Harrison film I've mentioned. I'll keep it's... it. Go on, go on, carry on. I, I was just going to say, it's, it's, you know, just because
2: we talked about the Coen brothers with the last film where where Woody Harrelson plays a sort of bit part role. It's also Terence Malick's best film for me, by a long way. And uh, he has made films as well that I've really disliked and others that I've been blown away by. I really, really didn't like that one with uh, Ben Affleck in it. Yeah, I can't remember, that came out a couple of years ago, which was just tedious. It was just so bad. But then he's also the same guy who's made stuff like uh, Badlands and Toy of Life, which are great. So it's... He's a very weird director for me, yeah. Terence Malick, And I can't stand the narration that he puts in almost all of his films. <laughs> that just really winds me... Oh, uh, To the Wonder. That was the film with Ben Affleck. Yeah. It was just terrible. Um, but yeah, Thin Red Line is, is his best movie, if you ask me.
3: Um, oh, and back to yourself then for Donald Sutherland.
2: I knew there were countless classic Donald Sutherland films that I hadn't seen before, so I decided to... That are considered classic. so I decided I was going to track one of them down, specifically the British-Italian psychological thriller from 1973, Don't Look Now, which uh, I watched for the first time last night, and I was slightly tipsy, but it did freak me out. I'm, I'm, the, the alcohol levels in my blood may have contributed to that. Um, but anyway, so again, a bit like by, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers uh, was, it's also a film that's known for its ending. And again, I'm not going to give it away. And for one particularly notorious scene through the film, although with Body Snatchers, the notorious scene is the ending. In Don't Look Now, the controversial scene I'm, I'm about to refer to is quite a full on sex scene between Donald Sutherland and Judy Christie, uh, which appears in the first half of the film. And that's what Kind of garnered it such notoriety. It really struggled to get past the censors because of what it did, because there were no mainstream films in nineteen seventy one that had quite so much graphic nudity on screen. It's one of the first major films to get uh, distribution, despite featuring a cunnilingus scene, for example. I mean, it's it's all quite tame compared to stuff that came after it. You know, from stuff like even, you know, a decade later, you had. The Postman always rings twice, or more recently we've had stuff like uh, Antichrist or blue is the warmest color, which have really quite disturbing or even just full on full on uh, sex scenes in it there's nothing that graphic in, it. but still it was um the director uh, Nick Rogue, who was pushing the envelope at the time and there's a a quote from american censors um from from 1971 who said, "We cannot see humping." We cannot see the rise and fall between thighs. That's a genuine quote. (laughs) But that's that's pretty much all you do see. I mean, there's a bit of nipple, fair enough. There's a head between some thighs. And you see a bit of Donald Sutherland's bush reflecting in the mirror. But, you know, that's the worst of it, really. That's it. But I guess for 1971, it was just very shocking. And I hadn't seen stuff like that. Um, Or 1973, I should say, not 1971. Nevertheless, nevertheless, that was, wasn't was the scene that freaked me out. What I thought was great about it was how it opened with um, Sutherland and Christie's daughter drowning in a pond and then used all the motifs in that scene again and again throughout the rest of the film. So there's a repetition, the use of um, the colour red, for example, or of water, particularly like running water or moving water uh, and glass shattering. And I'll get back to you when I've thought a bit longer about what those specific things represent exactly but the point of them being uh, repeated throughout is you know it's just grieving parents every time they every time they're out in venice every time they look about there's something that will remind them of their dead kid it's it's obviously about how you'll never truly get over a loss like that which i thought was really clever i think that's really well well constructed but it made uh, don't look now it made it very interesting to watch although it did slightly sag in the middle the start was great. The ending ramped up the tension again. It was very suspenseful. But that middle third was just, it was a drag to get through. It went a bit giallo, you know, slightly pulpy. And Nick Rogue, the, the director again, he worked on a lot of schlocky horror films and was responsible for uh, the shots in one of Roger Corman and Vincent Price's finest moments. He was the cinematographer on Mask of the Red Death, which I can hear sniggering. But honestly, that is genuinely a brilliant film. It's a really I, good I like movie. the
1: Mask of the Red Death. It's good.
2: It's great, it's great, and it looks fantastic. Um, so he, he should get some, some of the credit for that. So yeah, it's, it's just overall a really good uh, grief thriller, if that's a thing. Um, wow. <laughs> I don't think it is, wow. but okay. I, I can coin the term there, grief thriller. And Sunderland, Donald Sutherland he carries the weight of the film on his own performance and excels.
3: Callum, your final Julianne Moore film.
0: Uh, my final Julianne Moore film is Joseph Gordon Levitt's Don John, which was his um feature debut uh, movie writing directing. Um starring Joseph Gordon Levitt as John as um, Don John a, a um sex addict. Uh, no a sex addict, a porn addict that who um essentially is on a who loves routine in his life, you know, you know, getting up every day, church, confessing sins, gym, gym, going out, pulling ladies and all that. Uh, the problem is he can't make any actual meaningful connection because of his porn, ha- like of his porn addiction, basically. Like he's, he's actually physically addicted to porn. Sex doesn't really pleasure him, not like it does when he watches the porn movies. And so, the film essentially chronicles a few like weeks and months of his life after he meets Scott Johansson, who he believes is the woman who will finally be able to help him. That is the woman that he'll finally be able to actually make a meaningful connection with. Um, and yeah possibly even beat his addiction with. and, and Julianne Moore plays into film as one of the as uh, one of his fellow classmates at a night college that he attends, I there and he starts warming up to in friendship terms and possibly even and possibly even complicating matters in the future as well um it's a really well it's a really um underrated film i find actually so it's quite it, it's, a, it's a pretty funny movie it has a wonderful cast of with fantastic performances. Levitt as well does an amazing job at being able to hammer in how that routine feels. Like, a lot of the film is essentially, like, a lot of films appear on the way that it works has to run on showing you that routine, like, right? Don goes through his entire life, you know, of his hoovering the house, going to the gym, and how, oh, and how little changes in his mood and lifestyle and that, right? can essentially affect his time at that it was done in a really interesting visual way, but also it doesn't in such a manner that it doesn't feel like it's bashing you over the head with it. And it's also a very well done, actually relatively smart look as well at porn addiction. Like it's not played purely for comedy, as well like, if actually genuinely looks at it as a serious condition that might happen. uh um, I mean it does happen even. Uh, the film only really sort of falters near the end when, for a film that spends so much of its runtime avoiding the Oh, he might have a porn addiction, but just meeting the right woman, having who can us him the right way, will end up teaching, will end up making him learn how to form real connections out there. Like I uh, go so far this way trying to try and avoid that ending, and then goes for that ending, which is kind of disappointing, really. But for the most part, again, the film is actually really well done. Very entertaining, very funny, um, very well performed from everybody, even in more thankless roles, like casting Brie Larson as somebody who doesn't speak for pretty like much the entire movie, which is a criminal waiting of Brie Larson. Um, but, yeah, I, I really like it. Um, I still find it incredibly underrated, actually, since I don't think anybody's really talked about it since it came out in 2013, and even then, were just the kind of, meh, it's all right. Um, but, yeah, I, I'd like to see Joseph Gordon-Levitt try making more movies. Like, like, not acting, like, like, actually directing and writing. Because I think he's got an interesting voice there. Um, but, you know, more features
2: he'll be able to, be able to um, hone, fine-tune. Yeah, I, I unfortunately, <clears throat> Callum was one of those who just sort of went, yeah it was okay. <laughs> I kind of... I do see what you mean. I do really like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think it was solid enough for a debut. I just I kind of was expecting a bit more from it. And I don't know what I mean by that, because I'm not sure what else he could have done to yeah. the story. But at the same time, it was I thought it was a little bit underwhelming. Mm. But not for the performances. Julianne Moore and, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt were good, as you expect them to be. But yeah, I,
3: I did meh at it. Okay. Uh, Chris, your final Jennifer Lawrence film.
1: Yes. Um, I have gone with uh, quite a timely film, I suppose. It is one of the Hunger Games films now. <laughs> uh yeah, I, I know, I know.
0: But, it's
1: a brave,
3: um, brave choice.
0: It's <laughs> a brave choice, and I will explain. Hey, why. You, you, you've got you've got me on your side. Assuming you tell okay. me what which one it is.
1: First. <laughs> I will. I have something to go with. The Hunger Games, Catching Fire. Now, this for me is. And now that I've seen all four of the Hunger Games so this for me is what is probably the strongest film in terms of how it provides a narrative structure and how it kind of adheres to the first film's method of slowly building up tension. And then the second half is effectively uh, action sequence after action sequence in the arena. But it does build up on the emotional kind of stakes in the first film. So in case you haven't seen the second Hunger Games film, here we go Um, (laughs) so after Katniss Everdeen and Peter Malark have won the the 74th Hunger Games they basically find themselves with a big target painted on their back um, by Donald Sutherland's President Snow because of this he decides to organise a quarter quell which is when the winners of the previous 25 Hunger Games, they all get randomly picked and they get kind of moved into the um new arena to fight to the death once more so like the battle royale of all battle royales mm-hmm. now um i really really enjoy jennifer lawrence's performance in this but um do i think it's her strongest no but i do think she gets to play with a lot more emotion, and she gets to develop her range a little bit more particularly because this is her kind of this is the first time that she's been able to play character for the second time effectively, because this was done in 2013 and days of future past where she played uh, mystique didn't come out until 2014. So she really gets to develop the role of Katniss and make it into her own in this sense. Um, And it, it is, for me is the personally the strongest film in the set, because you do get to see the widening, kind of repercussions of what she and peter managed to do in the first film again i'm trying not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen the first film or that sort of thing i mean this also i would like to point out the cast for this i keep mentioning the cast for every film but the cast for this is actually very very impressive so you have jennifer lawrence josh hutcherson liam hemsworth woody harrelson elizabeth banks lenny kravitz Um, the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman you have Donald Sutherland, Jeffrey Wright, Stanley Tucci um, Jenna Malone you have Amanda Plummer and they're all fantastic fantastic actors who really do get a chance to kind of showcase their characters even if it's only for a little five minute bit for example um, Lenny Kravitz who I'm really surprised and impressed he's actually like an okay actor he's not brilliant he's okay (laughs) He actually gets a very cool developed little kind of arc that has started in the first film and it continues on into the second. I think that's quite cool for him and he plays against type and I think that's quite strong and cool. Uh, Elizabeth Banks um, is a bit of a revelation in this film. I really enjoy her in this. She is um, she starts off in the first film playing Effie as this very kind of brainwashed, picture perfect kind of sycophant of the capital and in this you you really start to see the cracks break and develop and the kind of the faults in this character start to come through which makes her infinitely more relatable and human and that can be said for all the characters really in this you see Katniss really kind of progress from being the scared teenager into becoming a kind of a force of nature on her own. Particularly when she's put into more environments and she's put into more situations, not just in the arena, but when she's forced to adapt and deal with political situations within the capital. I will say this probably has the best kind of cliffhanger ending of the of the whole series. I, again, I'm not going to spoil it, but it kind of sets things up in a really strong way and ends things on a big cliffhanger and a big strong note that pretty much secured the rest of the Hunger Games franchise. And yeah, I, I just really enjoy it. It's the one Hunger Games film. Um, This is a bit of a spoiler. It's the one film that I would watch again and again. And I would be like, oh, okay, this is pretty good. This is probably the strongest one. So
3: yeah. Okay, my final uh, Woody Harrelson film for Triple Phil is uh, Zombieland, one of my favourite <laughs> comedies from the last probably 10 years or so. Uh, he plays Tallahassee. Somebody who has got a real uh, problem with the zombie apocalypse and a real quest for finding his favourite sweet or whatever a Twinkie would be called in England. I've tried. Have any of you tried a Twinkie? They are sugary death. They're sugary death, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I I, I, I can't try them now because
0: diabetes. I
3: think. I think just looking at one gives you diabetes. Genuinely, uh, there's um, a Tesco next to where I work, and I went in and tried one because there's an the
1: American section, and it just tastes of nothing. It's just, yeah. it's it's like eating a sponge with cream in it, and it's just I don't mean sponge. I mean like an actual like washing sponge. <laughs> yeah, yeah that means Any, I mean nothing.
3: anyway, Fox, America, what the fuck are you eating? Um, <laughs> have, have a Twix. They're lovely. <laughs> Anyway, uh, it also stars Jesse Eisenberg and Emma Stone, Abigail Breslin, and an excellent cameo from Bill Murray as they try and survive their way through the end of the world and kill zombies in very creative and entertaining ways. I just think he's he's brilliant in this. He's kind of this unhinged person with a slight, well, an interesting backstory it's only just touched on but you know yeah it is one of the the best comedies of the last decade in my opinion
2: yeah it's very funny did you see skate's guide to the zombie apocalypse in the end no i haven't yet is that who was that who groaned
0: who do you think (laughs) groaned yeah did have you ever, like, ever wanted to see Zombieland if it was aimed more at
2: idiotic teenage boys? I was about to make a similar point in, in that they're, they're both around the same kind of idea, but, you know, it's a zombie apocalypse and it's a comedy and it's it's not played as some of the B-movie comedies are. Zombieland is much more, I was going to say nuanced. That's not the right word, is it? But you know what I mean? Comparatively, the humour
3: in it is... A, is. Not quite as it's, not, low it's r- not lowest common denominator. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's, it's a bit a, smarter. It's, it's a bit more clever with it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. Zombieland is awesome, and this is because I'm really weird, but I'm very grateful for this film because it let people see that Emma Stone's hilarious in a leading role, which meant that they probably would have backed Easy A, which is probably my favorite teen comedy in the past ten years. I did so like, like
3: it. I did like Easy A. I thought Easy A it was very. I didn't expect it to be when I first watched it. Yeah. I thought it was just going to be one of those kind of by-the-books comedies that might get a couple of laughs, but I thought it was great. I thought our, pa- our parents, especially her dad, and that were the funniest parts of it.
1: Well, that's it. You have these fantastic... You know, like Stanley Tucci, who does do a lot of serious drama and stuff, and then you have him in a role, like, in Easy A, which is... He's hilarious. Patricia Clarkson as Her mum's hilarious. And, it's you know, there's, like, the whole adopted exchange in the kitchen and everything, and I just love it, but... Yeah, I watched Zombieland twice on a plane, and I was—I laughed both times. I'm like, this is really good, this is really solid, funny stuff, so yeah, good choice.
3: We finally got there, the time for the main review of this week's podcast, Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2, the final part of the four-film Hunger Games franchise, starring all your favourites from our triple bill and the series as a whole – Um, as it comes to its conclusion. Anyone who hasn't seen the film, we probably will end up spoiling it in this bit, so if you want to turn off now and join us next week, that'll be fine, we'll let you off. Or if you don't mind it being spoiled or have seen the film, then join us for this review. What did we all think of it? I thought it was quite boring. But then I've not really liked any of them since the first one, I think the (laughs) second one was okay. They're all quite forgettable for me. This is probably... Of the All the kind of teen-lit drama adaptations have seen the best series, but that isn't saying a lot when it's kind of competition is Twilight and Ender's Game and Divergent and Maze mm. Runner. I, and... I,
0: can already, I can already tell I'm going to be in minority in this discussion. <laughs> this, <laughs> well, this is going to be fun. Well, maybe not. I think Chris, we were just established
2: as a fan of the series. I'm more on Steve's side <laughs> than I'm... <laughs> uh, okay yeah. i'm not really a fan of the series at all i don't think i've actually spent so many hours watching a series of films that i don't enjoy then the hunger Games. i've seen this i've seen the third one twice i really just they're, they're really long films anyway so you have to sit through them and it's just so boring the second one is the best one i agree with chris's review from earlier in the sense that of the four of them it's the one that you can just watch in isolation and it's fine and it's it's sort of a self-contained story the the rest of them i just don't get i just get like steve said as well i just get really bored with them this one's mainly for the first half an hour at least is just speech after speech after speech after speech whether it's like uh katniss addressing a trainload of refugees or whether it's president snow speaking to a room of delegates or the rebel leader on a podium, or Woody Harrelson talking to Jennifer Lawrence about Pader, Or whether it's the squad leader. It's just constant speech after speech after speech, with very little dialogue or actual interaction between characters aside from that. And it was just dull. It was boring. I don't get why it wasn't paced better. Just, yeah, it got a little bit better for me, but we'll come on to that in a bit. So just to, to go back to Callum's point there. Yeah, I'm not a, a fan of the series. I can tell Steve isn't either. No, I mean
3: to cut to to play on what Owen said, the guy who can't talk probably does says more than anyone else in the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what what do you think of it then,
2: Chris? Are you a fan of the series of the series as a whole? It's
3: really... Quickly first of all, have you or, or Callum indeed, because I'm I haven't and I'm guessing Owen hasn't, read the books?
1: No. No. I that um, that was
3: short and sweet then. Yeah.
0: That was part of the discussion.
1: Yeah. I just, I just don't have time to be reading them. Um no, read it, I,
3: readings for losers. Oh no no I I, I <laughs> love to read
1: but I just can't be invested in a full series at the moment. Yeah. And I'm just like no I just I, I will watch the film it's easier. Um there are
2: better things in the world to read than Yes, exactly.
1: It that's my thing i imagine there's, I there's so many books so out there that i haven't read yet i can't waste time on the Hunger games <laughs> but it, it's weird really in that i didn't start off as a fan of this i thought oh, okay it looks a bit crap it looks a bit all this sort of thing and this and um, seeing mock and jay part two is the only one i've actually paid to see not in an illegal way but the last two are on netflix and the first one was on channel four last mm. year so i was like oh, okay i'll just watch it it's free all that sort of thing yeah, I I was a bit disappointed really because it doesn't really let up. Does the like la- does Mockingjay Part Two in that like you said it starts off with half an hour of just and now we're talking and now we're talking and it's unnecessary exposition and it's all this and it's all that. Um, and then in the middle of the film when it proper starts to like kick off a bit, it changes tone rather weirdly really, mm-hmm. in that there's a huge sequence, um, in a sewer thing. Yes, involving yeah. basically our leads and then quite a lot of red shirts um and it's quite <laughs> in a way because you have this kind of squad of people and then it's just
2: but that was the best <laughs> bit of the whole film for me well
1: it, well, yeah it's because of the die. that's why you like it because it's just like oh you're dead now <laughs> <But> it, was <laughs> you're d- dead. it was like
2: it was like watching in a, a, a ki- not the same as ridley scott's film but like a kid's version of alien if you like, oh. you know, and it was I thought it was quite fun, and also I don't know, is it just me? There have not been monsters like those zombie fishmen in the rest of the films, have there? Have I missed out yeah. on this thing where were, they there said were, there were
3: mutant creatures? There were creatures in the, the actual ones where they had the actual Hunger games, weren't there? Yeah, but they were just like big bats. Yeah.
2: I mean, this had actual monster men in the sewers, which just came no, out of nowhere.
3: No, I
1: don't think they've shown them before. I think it's been hinted because they were talking about the actual idea of the mocking jay and the, like the one in the first one, which is the Tracker Jacker, which are there those fucked up bee things that will just sting you to death and yeah. you know, all that sort of thing. But no, I just I, I really wanted to enjoy this. I really thought, do you know, what, I love a good Final part of a trilogy or a quadrilogy Mm or that sort of thing. I really enjoy a good ending or that sort of thing. And it was just, it was so
0: unremittingly
1: bleak that even the ending, which is supposed to be sort of bittersweet and hopeful, it just, it really kind of just left me with a bad taste in my mouth. It's not to say that the acting isn't good in it, it's just so dour. It's such a grey, miserable series. And to be fair, if you're looking back on it and going, oh, the first the first one was so lighthearted, it was just children killing each other, and it just gets worse, then mm. you don't really know what to say. It, I, in a weird way, I understand why it's been targeted at this particular audience, because if you know the... Not, not exactly the, the millennials, but the children growing up saying, oh, well, the world's screwed, all that sort of thing, so they're watching films to reflect and everything, but I kind of draw the... Pick something a bit more optimistic, really, than you know, the Hunger <laughs> Games. Um, oh, one thing that annoyed the crap out of me. Sorry, I was just thinking then. There <laughs> uh, is one character? Okay, it's basically Peter keeps doing Paira. One... No, Peter. 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 I
2: have to say.
1: Okay. Um. Uh, Peter keeps um doing this one thing when he's out doing a mission with the others and it's fine the first time because it makes sense because of his character and what the character's gone through, but the fact he keeps doing it two or three times, it just started to piss me off. And I I didn't mind the character beat. I thought, oh, okay, he's a nice contrast or that sort of thing. But it's the fact he keeps basically trying to kill Katniss and I'm just like, just, you did not need to do it three or four times. It's just getting annoying now. It's just like, you know, rinse and repeat on the same thing. And I really wanted it to be kind of different. I wanted it to keep moving, all that sort of thing. So you know, stylistically, I get it, it's enjoyable, the performances are good, Jennifer Lawrence is quite good in it, but I just, I, I, I won't go watch this again, I really wouldn't.
2: So, Callum, boxing gloves on, why are you
3: defending this film?
0: Here's why you're all wrong. <laughs> no, not really. Is, it, is um, this
3: Callum's, Callum's um, kind of segment on the podcast when he's on, it's just called Callum Tells Us Why We're Wrong? yeah. <laughs>
0: No, 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 don't worry. Um, so, this thing. I don't want to say anything, like, majorly concrete right now. Not primarily because, like, last year, for example, specifically last year, um, I watched Black Hobbit movie. Um, at the time, I remember saying that um, I actually felt like it was a satisfying ending, that I really enjoyed. And then, as time went on got further removed, I kind of realised it was all a bit shit, really. So, I don't want to say anything specifically, like, of a kind of, like, concrete. But for now, I am satisfied. And the reason I am satisfied is because this series ended exactly the way I knew, thought, and kind of hoped it would. As this unflinchingly, unremittingly, bleak, almost, almost completely hopeless examination of war and trying triumph- to, um, taking down and the, the personal tolls and effects it had, but attempting to enact giant societal change can have on a person, like, that's kind of why I really like the movie so much. Is because in it, essentially in what is ostensibly a, a, a big two hundred million dollar action blockbuster series aimed at you know aimed at teenagers right there, which in typical to which in this kind of big idea like, you know, like when you're throwing around this kind of money, which has songs and playing to this wide audience, normally the remix, but I find anyway, right, is to go for big, ridiculous crowd pleasing, like to try and pull a happy ending or some sort of light out of your ass, even when there isn't really something to go there. But the Hunger Games doesn't do that. Instead, the entire time throughout Mocking it remains true of itself in the sense that, in the way that it has this constant examination of Kat- of catness and how, again, again, the entire point of the entire series is that she's been thrust into situations she has no control over and doesn't want any part of, but eventually ends up being so broken down but essentially that uh, she eventually does become numb by the end of it uh, which and and because the series is all about following Katniss and focusing on her headspace which is simultaneously positive negative, and negative negative. I'll get to why it's also negative in a minute here that essentially is why I feel like the entire film feels hollow like even when like even when you get to a finale and there is some semblance of something good happening but that it all still feels hollow it still it doesn't convinced it doesn't feel like something's hard, hard happened because to katniss it really hasn't. again she's basically just been put through hell and she's hit the point where she no longer cares and it would be so and it would have been so easy for the film to just end on like on everybody coming up fine with sunshine and roses and all of that stuff but instead it it's a, we ended a giant blockbuster like this giant blockbuster series it, with ellie harrowing who essentially you knows? that she is still traumatized multiple years on by nightmares of what she had to do. Incidentally, as well as quickly mentioning here, um, my big criticism again the film is the fact that it doesn't know when to end. Like, yes. like, like it has, far, like, during its final 10 minutes, it has, like, five separate scenes where it could just stop, but it keeps going and going and going. It has that Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows Part 2 thing of just not stopping and having to do a fan service ending, um, which, incidentally, as well, very quickly, and I mentioned this with Lucy on screen well, one this past week as well, is I'm not somebody who sits here and says, oh, all female characters should you know, don't need to have a man kind of ending a first series and that here. But in this instance, I do genuinely believe that it would be much better if Cannes didn't end the series with Peter. Because that romance, like as much as I love the rest of the series here, that romance has never convinced. Like the entire time, that's it. that romance was never convinced. It never came off of anything other than just two people protecting each other. Like there's not been no spark of love, so at the end of just pulling into Peter's arms, I feels like he's taking shivers. Anyways, like other than that though, again, the film is so committed to the psychology of war, like so examine, examining that and what happens when people, when the good guys ostensibly believe that that you can just throw out the book and do whatever, and how that is as much a self-destructive purpose to the war as it is there. Because the important thing here is that Mockingjay. The twist, of course, the big twist, which, again, I called from pretty much before I even sat down to watch Mockingjay Part 1. Like, cause it was the only place the series could go back. there. Big twist, but it, but I didn't know what would happen. Like, I knew, like, I knew the twist, but I didn't know how it would happen. But, the thing I love about it is well is the way that it doesn't demonize the revolution. Like, it doesn't demonize the ideals and the change of the revolution. Like, as, as seen through Katniss, as seen through Haymitch and stuff like that. Instead, it demonizes those who co-opt the revolution for their own selfish gains. And for those who just refuse to learn the lessons of those that came before, such as that. Which is why, for me, the coin stuff about that actually works. Helped by the fact that Julianne Moore has been playing that character in such a way that when the twist does come, it's really not been the slightest bit of a surprise at all. Javelin's is fantastic in this. Donald Sutherland is great with what little he gets to do. Because again, again I do get why the series focuses so much on Katniss's headspace, because again, it's all about how much war and change and being shoved to a pressive system breaks down a person so they've basically got nothing left to feel anymore. But, uh, I get why folks are focus on her, Herbert at the same time it also means that all these supporting characters are essentially just shuffled off of the sidelines in this movie with well, basically no resolution.
3: I, I um, kind of agree. I think for, for me, two of the most interesting characters in this film were Coyne and Snow, who you don't really get to see too much of.
0: Yeah. To hear too much, yeah,
3: but of. The, but, but them themselves and their motives and and arguably what would have been their story arc, if they had more of a story, um, were were the most interesting things.
2: Yeah. But their representations more than something else. Yeah. Like,
3: they're, they're an ideology
0: but, more yeah. than a plus, character. Also, plus, also that way as well, then you get a sense of being able to see how they look to Katniss as somebody who is just recalling their various plans, like, even yeah. when she's not wanting to be. To it. Okay, I feel like I feel like this, a lot of this might have been made better as well if they didn't cut. Because I know the books were written in first-person phones as well. So, but like, so of course, since you can't physically see, like, hear, like, can't actually properly hear her thoughts going around in her head, it means that you do have that kind of pollen as But well. although Jennifer Lawrence does wonderful work in so, you know, facial expressions as she always has
2: um well the, the, but... it was interesting in the, at the end of the second film the guy I, I saw that with in the cinema i wasn't really impressed that much with it but he said that's why jennifer lawrence is a good actress because the very final shot of that the second movie is her coming to the realization you know it's just a close-up on her, of her face and she just sort of yeah. expresses how without saying anything you get it she now understands exactly what she's got to do yeah. i um, yeah, yeah, like, Lawrence
0: is the actress to tell that kind of thing. And also, exactly. as, so- as somebody who's watched too many shitty young adult adaptations, I'd sit through a, a lot of really <laughs> shitty, like, you know, voice, droning voiceover narration. I'm just happy this series never went that way. Right. But,
2: but similarly, I thought the Donald Sutherland death scene, his laugh was also very expressive of a lot of things. And yeah. it, was, it, was a, it was a gag. It was a clear gag because she, again, she could have just been manipulated by him. That's one of the things that is is hinted at, and he laughs at it, and it's like, okay, well, is she just doing his bidding even now? Because the film, a lot of the time, repeats that idea of that she's a slave to him. Yeah, like I and, symmetry,
0: there's literally just no way for her to break out of the system. But exactly. It, again, it's a, again, I think it's a fantastic movie, in the sense, again, that it does actually commit fully to that. But no, no I, I really, really, I actually, currently, right now, I am satisfied by this ending. And I am happy with it. I I do wish it finished five minutes earlier. Yeah, I get why it's Catmose off hunting again. Again, like, like if it just stopped there as yeah. a end shot, as like a mirror booking kind of thing. But um, I, I, I thought it was going to do that. I, I, I thought it that was that. as well. And then it kept going and going. It but... was.
3: It was a very Lord of the Rings, Return of the King style five yeah. endings.
0: No, I. I... Mm. I, I I I I no I I go more for Harry Potter because that one because again it's it's kind of turns into blatant fan service in the end like try, again trying to force a fan service happy ending where there isn't one. So those yeah. things kind of, But also just on
2: the ending on the ending because I know the way that you've described it, but I in the cinema thought it was a um, a happy ending, an optimistic ending. The way I saw it was that she was coping with the things she's done, and look, she's got a family, she's now happy, she's. Um, you know, sitting in this nice green, lush field where it, you know, it, it looked optimistic to me. That's yeah, a... that's what I
0: mean. Like it's trying to force a happy ending where there kind of really isn't one. Like, I, I, like the whole everything else being happy and then giving the mo like kind of undercuts the monologue she's giving mm. at the time. But um, okay, that's what I mean. Like it rings false, and that's the only time I feel like the film truly slips up with regards to getting its tone right. Because for so much of the time, it is so committed to being. This bleak, miserable, unflinching look right here. And I think, I think he does it fantastically. And I, right now, I'm satisfied. I am hopeful in the future as I revisit the series, you know, and watch it again, and watch it over and over again, which I will, because these are very good movies, although, uh, part one is, not in Mockingjay, part one is my personal favourite of them all. But uh, that is, I'm, I'm satisfied with this ending. And, I'm also, and I also feel satisfied that these were
2: split up into two movies as well. So I'd like to take back my complaints about Mockingjay Part 1. <laughs> mm, over four hours for this story. At the end, of the final part just seems a lot to
3: me. film of mixed opinions there. Um, final part then for us this week. We're going to recommend you stuff to watch uh, in the week ahead. I'm going to go with um, a film getting its um, first showing on terrestrial TV. That's on Thursday on film four, nine o'clock. That is seventy one, um, the Jack O'Connell film set in Northern Ireland Dur- during during um, the conflict there. I think me and Owen both saw that cinema. I think Callum might have seen it as well. It is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it's fantastic, and so it
0: was so close to actually breaking my top twenty out last
3: year. So was, yeah. my, last year was a
0: strong year.
3: Yeah, uh, but that that was a it is a fantastic film, and well worth a watch. Film four. A, Uh, and Channel 4 really pushing it being on. So I'm sure we'll be able to catch it somewhere. Owen?
2: So recently added to Netflix, it's also Jessica Jones, but that's not my recommendation (laughs) because I'm not really enjoying that so much. But The Voices is is on there now. And I I do have to say thank you, Callum, because I probably wouldn't have paid much attention to it if you hadn't have been so forceful in your recommendations of it. (laughs)
0: In the past, but it's brilliant. I've really liked it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it is a fantastic, funny, sad, scary, brilliant movie. Chris.
1: Um, yeah. Okay, so I have a couple of things to recommend. Last month, I saw uh, a film called The Final Girls, which is this brilliant um, meta horror that has possibly the most heart and emotion and genuinely affecting performances I've ever seen in a horror movie, which I strongly recommend, and it's fantastic. Uh, also out through it on DVD is Inside Out, which you will have seen if you've been near a, a screen at some point in the past <laughs> six months. You'll have seen the adverts for it. It's popping up everywhere. It's huge. So, yeah, those are my two recommendations.
3: And Callum? Right. So, I'm actually
0: rather glad Chris took Inside Out, because that means I can recommend to you a film that's in the cinema, but we have not talked about on this week's episode. It is called The Dressmaker. Which is the other film that came out this week, basically. And it is, like, it's an Australian, uh, movie based on a book, um, starring Kate Winslet and Judy Davis and Liam Hemsworth. And it is, a it is part noir, part, um, revenge movie, part drama, part comedy, part romance, part spaghetti western, part tragedy, and it's just, a, it's a 40-car pile-up of a movie. And it's just very, pretty much every movie that was ever made in the 1950s, like every genre that all together in one, often flipping between tones and things like that, between scenes like tones and styles and genres within the same scene, sometimes within the same line. And it is utterly ridiculous, and I love it to pieces. Like, it's an utter complete mess of a movie that is so, like, like nine different things all piling into one another together, but ends up having enough self-awareness to make it work... Like, like it's it's aware of how utterly ridiculous it is to such extent that even when it does seem like it's wrapping up at the ninety minute mark and then keeps going for another thirty minutes as it's seemingly like, like as it's sappy, um, mushy ending, mate, it seem like it's going towards. Turns out to be not at all be really the ending. It's going towards at all. Um, is it's it's fucking bonkers, batshit insane, and I love it to pieces.
3: Okay, uh, well that is all for this week's Fail Critics podcast. So thank you all for listening along with us. Next week, um, we're back with, don't you say another podcast, You're, you know this is happening every week. Bridges,
2: Spies, and it's, uh, Callum is back next week. Did you know
0: that, Callum? I had a feeling, because it was Pixar, <laughs> Right, I'm, I'm still yes. annoyed I want to be on from Inside Out, so.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, Callum is back next week for Bridges Spies, The Good Dinosaur, Black Mass, and something called Carol, if that's still coming out. Oh,
0: Carol better be coming out around here, otherwise I'm going to be very upset.
3: But yes, thank you, thank you for for that uh, for listening, and obviously join me, Owen and Callum next week.
2: Yeah, and Chris, have you got any endeavors coming up that you want to plug on the
1: podcast? Um, I, I wish uh, my life was way more exciting, but I'm just like, no, I'm just looking forward to Christmas to be honest. That's, that's, <laughs> my, that's my thing. Um, I do have an episode of uh, Pick a Flick that I recorded yesterday, weirdly about the first Hunger Games film. That'll be coming out soon, but yeah, I'm generally to be found on you know Pick a Flick and other podcasts and stuff. So yeah, just find me there on Twitter. I am at higher
0: underscore boy. Thanks. And
2: Callum, what have you got coming up in the, the next few weeks? Uh,
0: you can find me on Twitter at CallumPetch. I promise I'll be less miserable, than it, well, I'm to make it less miserable than it normally is. <laughs> uh, you can read older writings at CallumPetch dot I am trying to find the time to actually put, put all the writings up on there, since I can't write any new bloody stuff because I don't have time. Um, and you can listen to Screen One, my weekly radio review show my friend Lucy Mia, on Mondays at 2pm on Whole Fire Radio. But you can also watch us now, since we have webcams for some reason.
2: Nice. A bit like Mid-Morning Matters.
0: It's like, like that, except we're not Alan Partridge.
2: <laughs> if you can get an exercise bike in and ride it at the same time, that would be great. I will tune in. There's
0: not enough room, but I will talk to Adam about doing about getting it. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, guys.